Career Curves is pleased to have Groove, maker of the Career Clarity Toolkit, as our sponsor. Are you feeling stuck or trying to figure out what's next in your career? The Career Clarity Toolkit uses design thinking, guided reflection, and career experiments to give you confidence. Go to careercurves.com groove to get started. As a special promotion for Career Curves listeners, use the discount code CURVES to receive 10% off your first order. What if you're on one path, and it's a path that you always thought you were going to be on, and then an experience excites you about something totally different? Do you make the leap? Our guest today did just that. Welcome to Career Curves, where we talk to people who have interesting careers and explore how they got where they are. I'm your host, Beth Davies. Today, we're joined by Jason Elliott, who currently serves as Senior Counselor to California Governor Gavin Newsom for Housing and Homelessness. Since graduating with a Master of Public Policy and Social Policy in 2008, Jason has worked in politics and government, including as Chief of Staff for three San Francisco mayors. But this isn't what he thought he was going to be doing when he got started in his career. During our conversation, Jason explains how he got into government, the difference between politics and government, and how he discovered which one plays best to his strengths. I started by asking Jason what he does in his current role in the governor's office. The first thing to understand is that California is a really big place, not just the population, we're 40 million, but the size of the government. We have about 265 agencies and departments and a little over 300,000 employees that work for us across a a budget that's uh, just north of uh, $200 billion. So our responsibility in the cabinet department of the governor's office is to ensure that to the greatest extent possible, the government is moving according to the policy direction of Governor Newsom, the values of Governor Newsom. If he could be everywhere all at once, how would he direct the government to move? So now if I were actually following you around for a day or or for a week, what would I actually see you doing? What I do on a day-to-day basis can probably be bucketed out into sort of three big categories. Uh, Big category number one is managing the bureaucracy, finding out what's happening in an agency or a department, working with um, the secretary of a given agency on getting through a thorny problem, finding out what's happening, giving some direction from the governor's office and managing the bureaucracy in a sort of very traditional hierarchical sort of system. So that's one group of tasks. Another group of tasks is thinking internally with my partners and peers in the governor's office about how we want to move the agenda forward. So it may not be something that we're reacting to. It may be an issue that we want to be proactive about. And then I think the third important thing we do is we keep the governor apprised of what's happening inside the government, uh, receive feedback from him, and disseminate that feedback from him, which is important because ultimately uh, he was the one that was elected. And, you know, we often remind ourselves, I didn't put my name on a ballot and you didn't put your name on a ballot. Uh, He did. And ultimately he's accountable for the decisions that we make at a staff level. So making sure that we're not uh, stepping outside the bounds of our uh, authority or, or imprimatur is important too, and making sure we're reflecting Governor Newsom's values as opposed to trying to put our own values into the... Which uh, is like you said before, that there's a piece of you going into this that says, if he were here instead of me, right. what would he be? Right. And the way I, I describe this in, in previous jobs I've had, especially uh, as a chief of staff to a mayor, I get a, I get the luxury of reading more than the mayor gets to read having more conversations than the mayor gets to have and thinking longer about this issue than the mayor gets to think about it because he or she is pulled in 500 directions, doing public appearances, fundraising, all that. 
if the mayor could have read the whole white paper, what would the mayor do? How would the mayor, um, how would the mayor process this information? And trying to sort of let your boss inhabit your head and make decisions, you try to make decisions as if you were your principal. That's good decision making as a political staffer. Interesting. How does this role play to your strengths? Oh, well, that's a hard one because that requires me to be reflective about what my strengths are. It does. Um, so <laughs> that's, a, that's a hard thing to do. Um, I, I'd say what I enjoy doing uh, and what the reason that this job brings me joy and this career and this industry bring me joy um, is that I get an opportunity to interrogate some of the smartest people on a given issue on a daily basis. Earlier today, I had a chance to sit in a conference room for about an hour and a half with everybody around state government who leads on issues of housing and affordability. Um, you know, they work for us in an org chart, but that's not the way you enter a meeting like that, right? You enter a meeting like that, understanding that you've got around the table several centuries of collective experience. And we get the opportunity as governor's policy staffers to try to push the envelope, to ask the question, to, um, to interrogate in a collaborative sense, uh, to get to a policy outcome. So that means you have to be willing to admit that you don't know as much as the person sitting across the table from you. Um, you you have to be willing to ask the question even when you're intimidated. Um, and I enjoy that. I enjoy the back and forth in a way that it can be banter, it can be collegial, but ultimately you're having a really substantive conversation. Because you don't mean interrogate like up against the wall. No, no, not at all. I mean it in the sort of I mean it in sort of in in the way of the academy, right? Which is going back and forth on an issue. What do you mean by that? I don't understand. Yeah, you're trying well, to pull out their best yeah, ideas, their right. best thinking. You told uh, it's funny because a week ago you told me this other thing. How does that square with this thing that you just mentioned? Oh, interesting, great idea. And trying to put together almost um, like a Socratic dialogue in a way but not for the purpose of just having a conversation, but actually seeking an outcome. So that's a lot of fun for me because I'll often, I mean, I've been at this a long time now and I'll walk into a conference room or I'll have folks come into my office and you do sort of have to pinch yourself sometimes that you get to have these conversations uh, at this really high intellectual level with people who are truly expert in their field. It feels like a luxury and I really enjoy that part of the job. Thinking about yourself as a boy, yeah, is this the kind of work you thought you wanted to do? Um, that's a good question. Uh, after I got over the fantasy about playing professional sports, I had an intention of being a journalist. Um, that was a passion that I, I writing it was and it still is a passion for me. From middle school through high school and through college and even into graduate school, I had uh, designs on becoming a journalist. And part of uh, I've taken a few steps in my career uh, that indicated towards journalism. Um, I had a moment uh, when I was working for ABC News. Uh, I was uh, at a presidential debate. I was working for... Um, when Char were, when were you at? This was in 2004. And were you in school at the time or was I, this after school? It was uh, sort of in that transition period. I was finishing up senior year and I didn't have much to do academically. So I actually started working full time. And uh, I was working uh, on the for Charlie Gibson. We were um, it's a 2004 election. So it was Bush versus Kerry. And we were down in I think it was St. Louis maybe uh, for a presidential debate that Charlie was moderating. And I was a, a production assistant or something for him, you know, something like that. And I remember watching the candidates' staffs backstage prepare for the debate and I thought to myself I want to be doing what they're doing I don't want to be telling the story of what they're doing I want to be doing what they're doing so that was a sort of hinge moment for me in my career which was um, I think journalists play an extremely important role in holding democracy accountable uh, and and especially in this day and age that said 
I think journalists tell a story. I wanted to be part of making this story. And um, it just felt to me like that was the place I wanted to go. I think there's a skill that um, planning to be a journalist left me with that is extremely useful um, in the career I have now, uh, which is interrogating. Now, I actually do mean this in more in the interrogatory sense, which is you need to be able to call bullshit on somebody when you feel like you're not getting the whole story. You pry around the corner for what the real deal is. Um, You don't feel ashamed about asking a question two or three or four times uh, until you get an answer. But probably more than all that, I think the thing that journalists do really well, and I respect and appreciate about that profession, is forming a story as you're having a conversation. So um, being what I call an aggressive listener, not just an active listener. An active listener is good. We can engage in dialogue. I respond to what you're saying. But an aggressive listener is I'm pushing you to give me more. I'm, I'm formulating a story in my head as I'm learning from you. Right. So it's not it's more than linear. It's dynamic. It's as I learn something, the story, the narrative in my head changes. And now I'm prosecuting this line of reasoning. So I think that's something that uh, that's a skill that I uh, learned uh, in what was at that point a budding journalism career, now a dead journalism career. Um, but uh, it really does prove helpful in working in an executive office and for elected official. So you just called that a dead journalism career. Yeah. <laughs> Do you see this pivot then as some sort of a failure? You sound to be a very goal-oriented yeah. person, a very driven person. Yeah. So when you decided to make this pivot, yeah. did this feel like failure to you? Um, yeah, I sort of regret not... Um, pursuing that um, professionally. I I think uh, it's really meaningful uh, to be able to um, highlight what's, to highlight what's going well and to call attention to what's not. I think there's, there's a powerful position that journalists occupy and the kind of journalism I would be interested in um, is in covering government. So I kind of wish I had done that uh, to be honest with you, but here I am anyway. (laughs) Do you see that door is closed to you? Um, well, I suppose that no door is ever closed, but I've dove in to this, uh, industry and this it's profession. not the path you're on right now. It's not the path I'm on now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I feel like I just made a, within an industry, a pretty abrupt career change from working in local government to working in state government. And to some extent, I feel like I'm starting over in, you know, even though it's still government and even though it's still California, it feels all brand new and it's really overwhelming. Um, and it's a new city. And it's it's new mores and it's it's new rules of engagement and it's really overwhelming. And this was just from working in a mayor's office to a governor's office in the same state. And this is like mind-blowingly overwhelming. I can't really imagine what it would be like to just hard abandon government and move to journalism or any other career for that matter. Um, it's like it's a frightening proposition. Yeah. To be yeah. honest with you. Yeah. As you make these changes, like you're just talking about. Um, and thank you for being so candid about how scary and how sure. hard it is. How do you, as you're making this transition, manage this feeling of turmoil and scary and overwhelming? Yeah. Um, my coping mechanism on that kind of thing, and it's just my personality, is I'm just really honest with people about it. And when I'm feeling overwhelmed or when I'm feeling like I don't understand something, I just say... Um, I don't get it. Or this is all very confusing to me. I'm sorry. I don't understand. Uh, There's something really powerful about making that admission. And you can sort of watch people's defenses melt away. I was in a big meeting earlier today uh, with, God, probably 20 or so people, 
all way above my caliber on this particular issue. It was about pharmaceuticals, right? Like, I don't know anything about pharmaceuticals, uh, except here are all the people that know everything about pharmaceuticals. And there was an acronym that got used. And I just said, I'm sorry, I don't know that acronym. And everybody started laughing because it turns out nobody actually did either. Um, when you just reveal your own humanity, it's, it's like a magic trick. All that facade just sort of starts to crumble away. And by the way, if it doesn't and you reveal yourself to someone and say, this is all really frightening to me and I, I feel like I'm in over my head and, you know, what, I help. And, and they the person don't respond. doesn't respond to you. Yeah. Well, I think that's the, that's the character judgment that you need to know what kind of person that really right. is, you know. Right. So that's just, that's just my strategy. I'm sort of like an oversharer, I guess, um, which is probably good for podcasts. It's perfect for anyway. me. Are you kidding? <laughs> um, but that's my strategy because you keep it bottled up and then you don't learn. Really, I think if you pretend like you know what's going on all the time, uh, you know, nobody actually knows what's going on all the time. That's the big secret. When I talk to high schoolers or whatever, you know, I, I, I have like a little shtick I do about the fact that, okay, well, you know, you're 17 or 16 and, you know, you're looking at me and I'm 36. I'm very old. I remember what 36-year-olds look like when That's I was 16. Right, right. Very old. I'm very grown up. Well, let me tell you something. I have no clue what's happening. I'm completely overwhelmed on a day-to-day basis at work. I feel like I'm uh, – when is when are people going to figure out that I do not belong here? And that's a feeling I come into work with every single day. So guess what? Um, go do something and scare the hell out of yourself, right? You should always feel completely overwhelmed because that's – the human nature is to then learn and adapt and you know humans are real adaptable and rise to the occasion rise to the occasion or don't by the way and then whatever and then you'll you learn know, about yourself you learn. and you know so long as you're not actually working on life and death issues failure is all right so going back so here yeah. you are you're at the with ABC News you're at this oh, yeah, debate God, we're going all that's the way right back. where I'm going yeah. all the way back right and you realize that's what you want to be doing yeah. Um, and you're finishing up your undergrad. Mm-hmm. Did you go straight from undergrad into grad school? No, I went and worked for um, a great guy who was running for mayor of New York City named Fernando Ferrer. Uh, we He ran against Mike Bloomberg for his second term. So at this point, you really decided, yeah, that's it, I'm leaving media, go I'm, to, going for, I'm going for politics, and I'm going I right to a campaign. I didn't even want to do politics, I wanted to do government, but mm. I was 20-whatever to something, 22, and I didn't, I didn't know any other way to get into government. What's the difference between government and politics? Good question, really good question. Um, campaign, so the, the, the clearest line is the difference between working for a campaign and working for a government. So I think that's the clearest line. Politics and policy... Um, there's a much more uh, blurred line between those two. Certainly when you're on a campaign, you are doing much more politics than you are policy. Uh, and when you're in government, ideally you're doing more policy than you are politics. Uh, but those two things definitely bleed into each other. One of the frustrating things for a policy guy like me about a campaign uh, is you can have an idea. If there's sort of 10 steps of policy making, if you will, right? Have an idea, brainstorm the idea, Refine the idea, talk to stakeholders, develop a budget for implementation, write the law, or whatever the 10 steps are. You can go nine of those 10 steps on a campaign, but you can't take the 10th step, which is implementation. And I think that that can feel, um, that can leave you feeling pretty empty if, if, how you find fulfillment, how I find fulfillment is in implementation, in the running of government, in trying to, you know, it sounds actually sort getting of it done. Yeah, but getting it done, you know, changing people's lives. I mean, it's sort of, it's a, it's a trite thing to say, but it isn't because it's what I wake up and do every day or try to do every day, I should say. Um, but if you don't get to take that last step, it can leave you feeling really empty. Um, and, you know, as a consequence, I've found that I enjoy much more working on government staffs than I do on campaign staffs. But it's um, the best kind of staff is one where the government folks 
understand how the work they're doing impacts the political imperative and how the political staff or the campaign staff um, understand that the things they commit the candidate to or say on the campaign trail have real world implications. Right, because they become the work of that government staff. They become the work of the government staff. So, you know, I think when everyone can move as a team, um, that's how you get the best outcomes, I think, for, for, for elected officials. So you originally thought you wanted to get into the campaign side, the political side. Yeah. How did you discover that it really was the government side that was your passion. Yeah. Um, so I, after I finished working on the campaign, we obviously were not successful on that 2005 mayor's race because Mike Bloomberg went on to serve that second term and then a third term. Uh, I went back to graduate school um, because I had an inkling that public service was what I wanted to do. And so at this point, graduate school off the journalism track. And yeah, solidly yeah. Into- I went to the Kennedy School of Government and pursued a master's in public policy with an emphasis on sort of social policy, workforce, homelessness, and that kind of sort of social services, social policy space. Uh, And I just, I mean, honestly, grad school for me was, um, it confirmed something that I had inside me, which is that public service felt like the right place for me. And, you know, I I talked to a lot of uh, younger uh, people who are considering going to grad school and should I go to law school or business school, or maybe I'll do a joint degree with a master's. And the answer to that question is always, um, what are you looking for, right? Not career, not what do you want to do, right? But what are you looking for? Are you looking, are you lost and you want to find direction? Do you have a sense inside you and you want to test it? Um, are you on a default path that your mom or your dad told you you got to go down? Like, what are you looking for? And asking people to ask themselves that question. That's right. What are you looking for? And then what are you going to do comes later. But what are you looking for? Now, I did not have this much insight into myself when I went to grad school, but um you know, I had a, um, I had a sense, but it was not, I could not really sort of explain it. I think in retrospect, what I was looking for was a validation that a life of sort of public service and policy and white papers and regression analysis was something that was going to be fulfilling to me. Um, and, uh, you know, I found that in grad school. So I feel like I was lucky to be able to sort of have the space, have the financial resources and have the freedom and flexibility uh, to pursue that, which is a luxury that not a lot of people have. Um, you know, I did not have to support my parents. I did not have to support a young family. I had the ability to um, sort of run down a passion, which is a luxury. And so I, you know, I sort of acknowledged kind of sheepishly that that was a luxury. Um, but that was two really great years at the Kennedy School. I met some of the most interesting and dynamic and publicly driven people um, that I've ever met at school. So it was a really, it was a really meaningful experience. And as you finished up that degree, is, yeah. was it at that point that you did pivot into government? And what did you do coming out of yeah. out of grad school? It's a, so I wrote a thesis, or a, a, maybe it wasn't my thesis, but I wrote a paper um, that unbeknownst to me, really, um, I had sort of replicated a program that this guy named Gavin Newsom had put together called Care Not Cash out in San Francisco. Now I'm in Boston at the time, mind you, right? And um, so I write this paper and it's, I'll spare you the details, but it's this sort of um, kind of welfare reforming, homeless funding, housing kind of thing. So it's just think of it in the social policy, homelessness and housing space. Got it. And uh, my, one of my advisors, one of my professors sort of said, are you, I'm not saying you plagiarized here, but are you sort of familiar with this care not cash thing? And I said, no, I'm actually not. Um, well, you may want to Google that one. 
Uh, and then I sort of start reading about what then Mayor Newsom was up to. And I say, wow, not only is this back home where I'm from, because I'm from Palo Alto. And so being able to be, you know, back the idea California. of being in California, North California, yeah. in the Bay Area, um, but also then being able to work for this guy who, from what I can see, he's been mayor for a handful of years. And gosh, he's doing some really interesting things. Um, I kind of want to see about working for him. So, you know, I... Uh, I sent some emails and I tried to, you know, work the network and talk yeah, to totally people. I'm totally curious and, how you cracked that nut and got into <laughs> got into his office. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's just, you know, again, it, it's just sort of, um, well, persistence is one thing, but I, you know, I was also, again, really fortunate, and I mean that in the sort of truest sense of the word. I was able to do an unpaid internship, right? Which, you know, I know that it, there's an, a greater awareness now than there was whatever this was ten or whatever years ago, twelve years ago, that unpaid internships are a luxury. Um, and that most people who are pursuing careers don't have that opportunity. And it's not that they're not offered an opportunity to take an unpaid internship, um, but it's that I can't work for four months right, right. without earning money. What, like, what, that's insane. Um, I was able to do that. Well, you were able to take advantage of and having the luxury to take advantage of this unpaid internship. Yeah. Once you got into the role, Yeah. did you set out to prove yourself in any way? What oh, hell your- yeah. Yeah. So tell me. Yeah. yeah so tell I was me. Twenty you, something years old. I you've was got four months. Cocky. I was all those things, and you know, you come out of grad school and you just think you know everything, right? Um, and then you know, <laughs> life. So how did you prove you. that you were competent rather than just cocky? Oh, that's a good question. I would say that if you ask my colleagues, I still have not yet proven that. <laughs> so I don't. I don't know that that's. <laughs> I don't know that I've actually accomplished that. Um, but. Uh, I think some of the mistakes I made when I started in City Hall for then Mayor Newsom, I'm trying very hard not to repeat now working for now Governor Newsom, which is, um, you know, one of the things we talked about earlier was the luxury of being able to walk into a conference room and have the 15 smartest people on an issue sitting around that room. Okay, well, don't try to prove that you're smarter than them because guess what? You're not. Right. right. They so will be, see right through they it. They'll see right through you and it will devalue your ability to participate on that team. Right. Everybody brings something different. What I bring to a team is very different than subject matter expertise because with a few very narrow exceptions, I am not the subject matter expert on things in our office. Um, so instead of trying to muscle up and show that you belong, you know, take that proverbial step back, say, this is all very confusing to me. I'm eager to learn from you. Let me ask some questions. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the number one career advice secret to life key to success is other people love to talk, right? So give them that opportunity, right? And you just may very well learn something along the way that you can then put to practical use in, you know, writing some piece of policy That's or a, doing a brief email, but let other people talk, right? It'll Which make I know you it's, smarter. It's, it'll a silly, make you smarter. it's a silly thing to say as I'm sitting here uh, filibustering 95% of the time, but in an interview format, I don't feel guilty about this. Um, Nor should you. That's yeah. exactly the intent here, right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, I think, you know, I, I would say reflecting back on my early uh, career in the mayor's office, um, I don't know that I did a very good job of that. But did that internship convert into a yeah? Into so it converted. So yeah, so it converted. Um, I got to know folks. Uh, I was asked to take a leave, which is weird from City Hall because I had just basically started there to go work on the mayor's campaign for governor. That was the election that Jerry. So Brown, here you were just getting started in government, and yeah. somebody said, "Will you get back into politics?" Yeah, and and I um. It was, Why did you decide to do that? Um, I never actually realized how much of a weird turn that was until you just asked me that. I've never actually thought about that before. Um, 
why did I do that? Why on earth did I do that? Um, I really don't know. I guess that it felt at the time like I was being told, um, this is what we need you to do. And it felt like one big team. And so that's what I went and did. But um, that's a really good question. I don't know, actually. I have to reflect on that a little bit. But I did. And <laughs> what I ended up doing on the campaign was many things because when you're on a campaign, everybody does everything, you know, from dialing donors and staffing events and stuffing envelopes to writing policy and, you know, planning, you know, campaign events and all kinds of things. But what I really found my niche doing on that campaign was developing policy agenda. But again, you're on a campaign. So all the things you say so you can you go up through nine steps, but nine you can't steps, do the 10th. You can't take the 10th step. So then um, that lasted for about a year and change. Uh, during that campaign, um, I was a deputy campaign manager. And um, I met a young woman who was an intern at City Hall working for Mayor Newsom as an intern in the budget office. Um, and we got to know each other a little bit. And now we're married. And now we're expecting a child. And that was 10 or something years ago. Um, so... I would say the greatest gift of all gifts of doing that job was I got a chance to meet my wife. Uh, that's Nicole. why you took the yeah, job. Yeah, that's why I took the job. You said the universe has it. a message I for me. It. I don't know what it is. I knew it. So um, when that campaign, um, we didn't, we obviously weren't successful in that campaign. I returned to City Hall as a staff person. My title at that point was policy director, I think. So at the mayor's office. So yeah. Gavin Newsom's the mayor. His, his term is ending. Yep. But you stayed in the mayor's office in San Francisco. I did. Um, and had a really interesting run there. Yeah. Tell me about tell me about that stretch of your career. Sure. Um it was a beautiful time to be working in San Francisco because uh we had a mayor, Ed Lee, who was the kindest, gentlest, most public service oriented person I have ever met in terms of elected officials in all of my years working in government. So he was the mayor for, uh, for most of his term. Um, it was a guy named Steve Kava who was our chief of staff, who was a mentor and a friend to us and who taught us when I say us, cause it was me and it was my wife and it was so many of us that worked in that administration. Um, he taught us what it meant to serve the public. So Edley, Steve, the 20 or 30 or 40 other people that we were, we were a family and, you know, working, um, on in local government, there's something about being in the place that you are serving, that, um, you are connected to that community, whether you like it or not in San Francisco, I commuted from the inner sunset, uh, to city hall, which is in the tenderloin district of San Francisco, which is one of the, um, hardest, uh, to serve neighborhoods in terms of the concentration of poverty and homelessness. You're faced with it. Uh, and it is inescapable in the sense of you cannot pretend that it's not a defining part of your day. Um, so it, look, I did not love stepping over, you know, hype, broken hypodermic needles and people passed out on the sidewalk, but I'll tell you what, you can never forget what you're supposed to be working on that day. So there's something about, um, being in the city that you're serving that is so, um, challenging and rewarding. There's gonna be plenty of people listening who don't know yeah. the San Francisco story, but I, as somebody else in the Bay area know yeah. that. There was this, the news unexpected. Yeah. I think you may have woken up to it one day. Is that how you, you may have gotten um, notified no, in the I middle was of on, the night? Yeah, I was on a, I was on my way back from a Warriors game. I was in my car, um, almost, almost home. And I got a call from the head of the mayor security detail a guy I've known, a sergeant, great guy I've known a long time. Um, and there was something in his voice. So I got it down to general SF general, the hospital as quickly as I could. And, uh, 
yeah, the doctors and the nurses and the paramedics and everybody, they did, I mean, everything they could and more. Um, but it was just, you know, he, his, his heart was not going to cooperate. And so he ended up, uh, he ended up passing away, uh, probably if I'm going back, I think maybe about three hours after I got to the hospital. Um, and by that point, well, his wife had traveled with him there. And by that point, uh, I had called a, a few of our other colleagues, um, to come down to the hospital because, um, I needed help. We all needed to be together. This was part of the Edley family, you know, staff family. That is not literally his family. They, they were the ones that actually suffered a tragedy, not us. Um, and, you know, we also knew that, uh, we had to grieve which we did <laughs> sort of, but we also had a city we had to run. And, you know, when the mayor passed away by operation of our charter, which is like our constitution, the president of the board of supervisors, who at the time was London breed, who now is elected in her own right. Um, she became mayor and we had a grieving confused city that we had to shepherd through with stability. And, you know, I guess time and on a personal level, you're yeah. grieving as well. Yeah. And that was, you know, I still sort of, yeah. And you push a lot of that stuff down, to be honest with you. Cause, um, you know, I had a staff of probably uh, 60 or 70 or 80 people who were also similarly confused and grieving and shocked and angry and sad and all those things that you, uh, feel. And then on top of all that, we, we were immediately thrust into special election for mayor. Um, and there were so we had this personal grief, this professional change, um, the chaos of any time you have a big change like that, you know, and you, you do, are we, am I supposed to still be working on this project? Um, and, uh, so at that point I was the chief of staff to the mayor. Um, and, uh, so people are looking to you for guidance. Should I leave my job permission? Hey, I was just about to initiate this new project. Should I do, do it? Do I still do it? Do I still do it? Am I still wanted here? And you don't know what to say. Did you um, think at any point in this, that same kind of question of, should I leave my job? I didn't actually. Um, I had lots of other questions that went through my head and are still going through my head about those days. But um, I, I, I had to, I had to stay and, and I don't regret it. And I don't regret, I just, I had to, there was no choice of what I was going to do. I was going to stay and I was going to do everything I could to support the department heads um, and the, um, and the mayor staff that were um, working to try to keep the city moving forward. So that was just very clearly what I wanted to do, what I had to do, all those things. And so that's what we did. Um, you know, the mayor's race was contentious uh, in San Francisco and it was in part a referendum on Ed Lee's legacy, which was a really hard, and that's a natural thing to do in a, when you're, when it's an open seat, that's a really hard thing to watch when you're grieving desperately for your friend and boss. And part of the discussion in the political context is things that we had screwed up. Now, by the way, that's some, right. some of the criticism was fair and we didn't do a perfect job, but the timing just feels so the wrong. timing feels wrong. And, and, you know, it's one of those things where you go back and forth about what was, what was the level of appropriateness, you know, and I had some really hard conversations with some people that I really respect, um, who are working on some of those campaigns. And they said to me, you know, the, the tough shit, like you guys, we're going to, you guys ran a city. We think you didn't do a good job on these particular things. It's fair game for us to call it out. And, you know, I'm, I, I sort of understand that. I, and what I said back to this one particular friend and colleague was, I get it, 
but I can still be angry about it. Right. Intellectually, right? I can get yeah. it. Yeah. And, and, but and, I don't feel good about right. it. Right. And, and, you know, I would probably maybe do the same thing if roles were reversed and I can hate it and I can be angry and I can be sad about it and it can make me want to cry, but I can also understand why you're doing it. Yeah. Um, anyway, so the mayor's race went, happened and um, a particular candidate won. It happened to be London Breed. I, I really like her personally. I support her, you know, politically. Uh, and she's, I think she's doing a great job now. So. And so the, ultimately though, you ended up leaving that role and, and stopped working for her. Tell me about, tell me about the decision to, after I think you said nine years, leave yeah. the mayor's office. It was one of those moments in life when uh, you have to just see what's in front of you. And what was in front of me was a pretty profound change in the politics of the city. You know, Mayor Breed, who was beginning what I hope will be nine years of term for her, and she needs to have her own people and set her own agenda. And although she was very kind to me, um, you know, it, she deserved to have her own team in place. And so that becomes for you. It's like, okay, it becomes for me. me to yeah. And, and by the way, in, in no stretch of the imagination, did she make it uncomfortable for me? She was nothing but gracious, but it was more like, I was like, you know, you got to have your own, you got, you have an agenda. I'm not going to be here for nine years. And you should have someone that you could plausibly really partner up with and really Fair you know, enough. put your team together yeah. and do your, do your thing. And you know, Hey, by the way, I also knew that I probably wasn't going to be left out in the cold because there's this other guy named Gavin Newsom who's, you know, five, five months away from being a elected governor of California. So, you know, you just sort of look and you say, okay, time out. Where are we at? Um, and, you know, I, I was having lunch with somebody today and, you know, I, I said, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm still supposed to be in San Francisco. Like uh, Ed Lee would still be mayor right now if he mm. weren't, if he mm -hmm. weren't, um, if he weren't gone. And uh, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be in Sacramento. I'm not supposed to be sitting here at lunch with you. Now I am, and you know things are working out, and I'm I'm a happy person. But this is not where I was supposed to be. Right. This was not the plan. This is not the plan. And you know to sort of reflect on it that way can um, sort of knock you for a loop, and you realize that uh, you're not really in control of your own destiny. You know, and you sort of got to take you got to take things as they come. And try you can to make, make the, the right next move, yeah. but beyond that, yeah, you yeah. don't have the control. Yeah. yeah, you're working again for Gavin Newsom. I am right. One of the things I've heard people say is that sometimes it's hard to work for somebody twice mm -hmm. because their perception of you is still locked in to the first time they worked with you when you were younger and had a whole different set of experience. Did you experience that with Governor Newsom and did you have to do anything to shift his perception of you to mature it to who you are today? It's a really, really good question. I think that that is only natural. That, and I know I'm guilty of that with people that I have worked with for a long time. You always see people the way you knew them when you first met them. It's just, it's natural. And um, I don't know the answer to the question of whether uh, he, you know, sees me differently or treats me differently. And I, you know, I, I, and I think the best I can do is not to worry about how others perceive me, uh, but to not tr commit that, same mistake on other people. Great. A few more questions yeah, for you. Sure. And thank you for sharing your story. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, what would you say is the smartest career move you made, whether accidentally or intentionally? Um, this is going to sound like a goofy answer um, to pander to my wife, but it's not. Um, working with my wife was the best thing ever because, uh, and we work still to sort of together. She has a somewhat different job than I do. So we're not like literally you know, two doors down from each other, but working with your 
spouse or partner, if you can manage it, is the greatest thing because you have someone who intrinsically understands what you're dealing with. When you come home stressed, you don't have to explain why. Um, when you're happy, uh, you can just raise a glass and toast to it. Uh, and in a world that can sometimes be, as I've described it previously, hostile, right? I mean, it's politics. Politics can be hostile. Knowing that you have someone who unequivocally has your back is like having bumpers on a bowling lane. It's just, it's the best thing. Um, so I would say marry someone at work. That's <laughs> my advice. The flip side of it. If you had one do over, what would it be? What would you do? Um, I lied once uh, because I didn't want to seem, this was when I was in city hall working for mayor Newsom. Actually, I didn't want to seem like I didn't know what I was talking about. Um, and that lie, lie is a strong word. I overrepresented and the overrepresentation turned into an even bigger overrepresentation and it turned into an even bigger problem. And then at some point it became a lie. And, um, I, the issue that the issue was not a, an issue of consequence, but it cost me credibility with people that I cared about. And I think going back to an answer I gave earlier in the interview, I was not comfortable with myself in the workplace. And I made the mistake of thinking that if I could just muscle up and puff out my chest, that things would go better. It didn't go better. It went worse. And I spent a long time and perhaps I didn't even really successfully, but I spent a long time trying to re-earn uh, the trust of the people uh, that I had misled. And by the way, this was on an issue that was not that consequential, right? So I can't imagine how I would have tried to reconcile if it had been something that had been really significant. Um, so, you know, I, I still think about that. And when I have when, when you get that instinct of wanting to kind of push your way in and give an answer, you know, think about that because people will listen. And when you lead yourself down that path, it's very hard to turn around and walk back. So, yeah. And the last question, yeah. how do you define success? Uh, <laughs> how do I find success? Um, if, if I can sleep at night, I know I'm doing okay. And I actually literally mean that. I mean, um, when I'm worked up about something, when I think I've screwed something up, when I'm stressed out about, you know, not having achieved the outcome I want, I can't sleep. I lose sleep. Uh, and, uh, when I lose sleep, then it becomes a downward spiral. Um, and I then am tired at work and I'm frustrated and I lose focus. Uh, and when I can sleep, that means that I know I'm happy with what, what I've sort of done that day or that week. So, you know, I think defining success, um, it's not about saying once I get that title or once I pass that law or once I get that raise, cause you're just always going to leave yourself wanting. It's like, you just, you know, you're still hungry after that. And so I think success for me is if like, if I got a good night's sleep, I got a good night's sleep last night. Right. So I feel like right at this moment, I'm successful because that means that I did a good job. I'm not worried about that. I screwed something up. <laughs> uh, I think that's how I define success. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I really, I really enjoyed our chat. Like I said, Thank people you. love to talk. So, you know, you're asking yeah, me to talk. Yeah, there I go. All right, perfect. Thank you yeah. so much. A quick epilogue. Jason and his wife, Nikki, welcomed Lucy into the world in December. Congratulations to the entire family. And Jason, it might be a while before you get that sleep that you value. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll subscribe, listen to our past episodes, and tell your friends. We also invite you to visit our website, careercurves.com, to join the conversation and take advantage of the resources we've posted to help you in your career. Finally, be sure to like us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.